0: Well, hello, everybody, and welcome to the latest podcast, this one being for May 2016. Now, I suspect there are some people who uh, listen to these podcasts just about every month. I only produce one a month, but uh, I suspect there are some people who quite enjoy them and like to pick up on all of them. But probably most people only tend to listen to the podcast as and when it occurs to them. Oh, I've got a few minutes to spare. Oh, I know. I'll, I'll go and listen to one of Mark's podcasts. And this means that um, over the last few years that I've been doing them, there's quite a lot of probably, I would say, quite interesting articles and things that I've chatted about, which uh, you may have missed. So I've decided that this month I'm going to do a gold version in which I'm going to look back over some of the podcasts I've done in the last 12 months or so and cherry pick some of the um, more relevant and interesting uh, discussions that I've had and represent them for you again here, just in case you missed them. So I hope you rather enjoy this uh, little uh, sort of golden version of the podcast and uh, and that you'll find it interesting and useful. One of my um, close-up shows that I did this December, just gone, um, it was on about, oh, must have been about two hours before I was due to to set off to go to the venue. I got an email from the office of the company that I was uh, going to be entertaining for. And the person in the office said, oh, um, I assume, Mr. Leverish, that you'll be bringing your public liability insurance certificate with you to the the booking this afternoon. And I thought, well, that's that's interesting. That's the first time, as far as I can remember, I've ever, no, I think it's the second time. There was once a few years ago. But certainly in recent times, that's the first time I've actually been asked just whether I've got one, Uh, never mind whether I was going to bring it or not. Um, do you have public liability insurance? Um, I mean, quite frankly, um, what's the worst that can happen? I might give somebody a paper cut with the edge of a playing card and they might sue me. I don't know. You know, What's the worst that can happen? We're not fire eaters or juggling with chainsaws. Uh, We're doing card tricks and coin tricks. However, um, nevertheless, for years now, I have had public liability insurance. And the best one to get, in my view, is the one that you get as part of your membership of equity. Um the equity insurance is underwritten by a, a major insurance company. It's got ten million pounds worth of cover. It covers all the things that you need and you get it as part of your your annual membership, which is a fantastic bargain if there was If there was ever a reason to join equity, that on its own, apart from all the other benefits that equity can bring, um that on its own is worth is worth the whole membership fee. Because if you do ever get asked, um, it's great because the, the actual certificate is each time that you renew your, your, your subscription with equity, your, your actual certificate for your public liability insurance is updated. And so on this particular occasion, when I knew I had to have this certificate, I just, you just go to the equity website and you can download the, your current certificate. And I send it as a PDF within minutes uh, and the job was done. So apart from the fact that it's actually quite good to protect yourself just in case, you know, you're using the finger chopper and or the spike delusion and something goes wrong, um, then you're covered, or at least, you know, you've got somebody who, some insurance company who could pay out in the event of you losing the claim. Um, but certainly, um, if you haven't got that, I would really ha- advise you to take a look at the equity offer. Last summer, I was doing... Um, a private party which was taking place um well it was it was sort of like a holi- looked like a holiday cottage out in the countryside. It had um sort of it was sited on a what obviously used to be an old farm, so it had sort of, you know, open sided barns and they had straw bales for people to sit on and they had a whole gross going. It was great, great occasion. Lots of people there and I was I was mixing and mingling, doing magic for them. And I went up to um, there was there were two ladies uh, standing uh, talking to each other who I at one point I realised I hadn't entertained so I went up to them and I introduced myself. Oh, I'm the magician. You may have noticed me going around doing some magic. I'd love to show you some. And one of the ladies says said immediately, "Oh no, I can't possibly watch that." And turned around and walked away. Uh, oh right, okay. I said. So the other woman looked slightly embarrassed and said uh, said to me oh don't worry about her she, she's always like that she she can't watch magic she's got a thing about magic um, and, I, and I said oh, okay that's no problem anyway so I didn't think much more about it although I, I did remember it because I thought well that's a bit odd uh, about two months ago um, I was doing another show this time completely different type of event and the same thing happened with another woman uh, it was a, a drinks reception prior to a dinner and um i went up to a group of people five or six people said who i was started to to do some magic and one of the women said "Uh, excuse me and she turned around and walked away and although that in itself is not terribly unusual people do that from time to time when i went then in to do the magic around the tables uh, at the dinner itself while i was at one table two women came up to me and they said um I hope you don't mind, we're not being funny, but um, would you please not come to table 11? Because we have a lady there who can't watch magic and it really bothers her and we would appreciate it if you would you know, go past us. I said, OK. And it was the same woman. It was this same woman, because I looked across and I could see her there, who had walked away out in the drinks reception. I said, no, that's absolutely fine. I thought, well, that's good for me. One less table to do. Uh, I said, quite understand. It just led me to think, well, this, this is kind of odd. So uh, what I didn't know and what I have since um, did a bit of research and found out is there is something called rhabdophobia. R-H-A-B-D-O-phobia. Rhabdophobia. Have you ever heard of that? I hadn't. And apparently rhabdophobia is actually a sort of, a, of, a, of an illness. It's a fear of magic and magicians. Now, at first, I thought, thought it was uh, this is a joke, you know, but actually, apparently, in the same way that some people have a, have a, a really scared of clowns, uh, there are other people who, for some reason that it's hard to explain, I guess, have an actual fear of magic and magicians. Now, we're not talking about a preference here. Oh, I, I, you know, people say, oh, no, sorry, I, I really don't like magic. They may have had a bad experience with a magician once, or they, they just don't like the challenge that they feel magic is setting up for them. But I think this is a stage further on from that. This is not a preference. This is a sort of uh, uh, an actual fear, a phobia that they cannot control. And I'd never uh, sort of realised that anything like this could possibly exist. I mean, wow, I don't know how that ever gets into a person, whether it is something that happens to them perhaps when they're children or something like that, I don't know. But apparently it is a medical condition. So there you go. So if you ever get a situation uh, where somebody does that to you, um, rather than make perhaps a a sarky remark, because that's that's the, the, or I am quite harmless, I don't bite, or some other sort of flippant comment, actually it may be more for these people than you realise, and it's not actually, as I say, a preference. It is something they can't control, and therefore, to a certain extent, you need to let them off the hook. So have you ever heard of that? I know I certainly haven't. It's been uh, noted on a number of occasions, of course, that um, many magicians these days prefer to learn their magic via DVD uh, rather than learning from books. And uh, it was noticeable at Blackpool this year. I don't think there there was a single dedicated book dealer um, the days of Goodlift publications, when they used to bring their vast array of of books and of course magic books by post um, in the old days, they used to be um, very um, very successful businesses and the number of books being published was was huge because anybody who wanted to get their work out there, bearing in mind that in those days there was there was no electronic alternative, there was no e book and very little actually self publishing that was going on. So it meant that um, when a book came out, and a lot of them did uh, on a regular basis, it was quite a, a major event. And people like Magic Books by Post would have a, almost like a standing order with some of the book publishers in the United States that as soon as the latest books come out, they just sent them copies because they knew that people would want immediately to get hold of the of the latest titles. Now, of course, well, books do come out um, and... Uh, Well, Magic Scene, for example, having just published John Carey's latest book, um, Crafted with Carey, and last year uh, we published Wayne Dobson's Definitive Collection, a massive book. Both those books are testament to the fact that, yes, good books still do get published, but they're sold individually. You know, they're not sold by a massive book dealer. Um, there There are some magic book dealers around still. Um, H&R Magic Books in the United States is is one that jumps to mind. But generally speaking, um, whereas some dealers will just handle a few books, the the days of the dedicated book dealer um, perhaps are numbered, if not already gone. Uh, It's a pity really, isn't it? Because um, there's something very substantial about a book. I think particularly um, a good quality hardback book. Not only does it look great on your shelf and does it last longer, but actually physically reading it is, is, is very pleasant. Anybody who enjoys books um, as, a, as a physical object will relate to that, I'm sure. And, uh, and when I look on my bookshelf and see some of the, of the books that, that I'm particularly proud of or that I enjoy, I still pull them out of the shelf and, and flick through them from time to time um, because they are just pleasing physical objects. So I think it's a real pity if um, more and more things become digital, um, because there is no substance to that. And whereas, of course, yeah, it's it's important sometimes, or at least one way to look at it is that there are certain things that it wouldn't be worth putting into. Is there's not enough content to make an entire book out of, but an e-book which can have just a small number of things in it, makes it practical, it means people get their ideas out there, they get them published, others can can read them, then that seems to work okay. Um, but in terms of a major body of work, um, less and less people do that and they prefer to, to do DVD instructions or bring things out one at a time. And even, even DVDs, if you look at those, most things now have become one-trick DVDs, um, perhaps with a couple of extras, you see less of the the big DVDs that have, say, 12 items on them. Yes, they're still there. But at one time, that was all you got, whereas now lots and lots of tricks come out with DVD instructions, and so the One Trick DVD has kind of taken over. But, of course, moving on slightly from that, I've noticed that um, there are now um, one or two dealers who are starting to supply products that don't have any instructions um, actually, packaged in there at all. There's no DVD. But there are no printed instructions. All you get somewhere on the packaging will be a URL, and obviously, you know, you link onto that, and then you get access to online video instruction. Uh, I sort of wonder how that works for people who are not particularly keen to to go online, and there are still some people who are not particularly um, IT uh, savvy or who simply just don't want to have to get involved in all of that as they see it. But I can see that, um, you know, in terms of production costs, it keeps it down. And it does mean that you can also um, perhaps update certain things because you only have one centralised feed that everybody's logging onto to to look at. But it does make you wonder, OK, so if you're not getting any instructions for the for the product that you've bought and that it's online... Um, What about if in five years' time you get the trick out and you think, right, uh, now how is this done? And you log on and the URL doesn't work anymore or the company's gone bust. You have nothing. You have the the trick, but you don't have any instructions of any sort that you can now have access to. And so I do wonder slightly whether that's going to be a problem in the long term, even if it seems like a sort of a trendy and cost-efficient way to do it um, for the present. For well over 20 years now, um, I've been an enthusiastic business networker. I'm not talking about going to network with other magicians. I'm talking about going to general business networking events and marketing myself as a strolling magician for corporate functions or trade shows and so on. And I found this to be very, very good. I've got a lot of work from it because very, very few magicians um, go to the trouble to do it. So for me, it's been rich pickings. But one of the um, characteristics of going to networking events is that um, everybody exchanges business cards. And so every time I come home from these events, I always come home with with a little collection of cards. And for years, I wasn't quite sure how to keep the cards. If you just throw them straight in the bin, then it seems what was the point in collecting them in the first place. So I thought, okay, I need to keep them in something. So I tried and I've tried a number of different things. I, I tried buying um, sort of folders that have lots of poly pockets in them of the size of a business card. And I would slip them all in those. Um, and then I just had so many cards in the end that this wasn't practical any longer. So then I thought, I know what I do. So I Started to, um, using a hole punch, punch a hole in the corner of each card, and then I would string a load of them together on um, sort of metal paper binding rings that you could undo and put more on. But then you end up with these piles of cards, and and they're not very easy to look at. Um, So I've always struggled a little bit. And then I came to the obvious conclusion that you make uh, a spreadsheet of them. So I designed on Excel just a very simple spreadsheet in which I had the name of the contact and all their contact details in different fields. But the key thing was what the um, business or person did in that business. Because if you look at a lot of business cards, strangely, they often don't tell you on the business card what it is that the business is connected with. It'll just say AWG Inc. And then contact details and the name of the person. Well, at the time when they were talking to you and it happens to be an IT firm or something, then it was obvious. Maybe the title of, of the business gives it away. But often it doesn't. And so you get that card and you look through your folder or you look on your little ring binder thing and you see this and you think, I have absolutely no idea what this person does, which makes it the card totally redundant. So, um, putting a short note to myself as to what the business was, or what it did, and what it, what that person did within that, and also whether I followed up or had any conversations with that person as well, has been hugely helpful. And the other thing that I've that uh, it's enabled me to do is um, because I have um, an easily changeable database. When I meet somebody and it turns out they've moved company and uh, they're now with a different firm, or um, maybe some of their contact details have changed. Um, rather than me trying to go back and find the original card and throw it away and replace it with the new one, of course, I just change the database. And then I throw the card away. So I know it's an obvious thing, but it took me years to, to think of doing it in this way. And each time I come back from a networking event, that's one of the first things I do. Because if you've only got seven or eight cards, it doesn't take that long. And also, it, it it's quite interesting, because sometimes you think, oh, I haven't seen this person before. And when you start to type it in, it starts to pre-fill itself in, and it turns out, yes, you have. And because I keep a record of where I met that person and when for the first time, it means, ah, so I saw that person two years ago. Oh, look, they're now working for a different company. Or, oh, that person said they might be interested in in a trade show so now it it triggers off thoughts I contact them nice to see you again I remember when I met you a couple of years ago you were talking about doing a trade show so it enables me to talk talk as if I've remembered the original contact so if you do any sort of networking even if it's only with magicians um, and you do collect information like that if you just make yourself a little database on a spreadsheet doesn't have to be anything complicated you could find it a very very useful resource that you can tap into to get yourself more work now, while I um, did most of my two-week American tour on my own, um, I did have for company during the 4S Magic Convention my good friend Chris Payne, who's been coming to 4S for the last few years. and um, And it's great because we get lots of opportunity apart from attending the convention together, which is great, but we also get an opportunity to chat loads. And um, there was one conversation we had that I remembered where we were talking about the the way that the dealers are at magic conventions. And I was saying, well, it seems to me that um, over the last few years, it's gradually got more and more difficult to sell magic at general conventions because um, the the amount of the volume of sales doesn't seem to be as strong as it used to be. And we were sort of considering why that might be. And um, there are, of course, a number of different reasons. But I think one of the main reasons is that um, whereas at one time, um, I think magicians tended to save up for major conventions or major events that they were going to go to, they would save up their sort of magic spend money. and, And then they would go to the convention in the UK, something like obviously Blackpool or maybe in the old days British Ring, and they would basically blow the money in the dealer's hall they would just go and spend it all and just have a great time with it and whereas in the old days that was a real mo- those big conventions were a real moment for new magic to be released now it's not the same magic is basically coming out just about all the time and because it's easier for um, magic sellers and manufacturers to reach their customers, particularly through, let's say, emails or, or, or um, email uh, newsletters, it means that there is a constant um, dripping through of new products and therefore encouraging people to buy. And I think probably people are buying almost all the time. Well, not all the time, but they're, they're buying more regularly than perhaps they would have done at one time. Um, some of the um, the trailers, as we know, that that come with with the latest magic tricks, are, are are make you really want to buy the trick. They're they're really well produced and and they're very enticing. And so I think the. Uh, the temptation to just at the minute you see it to buy it rather than waiting going to a convention seeing it demmed live and then perhaps purchasing it people are buying as they go along and quite frankly you can't buy stuff twice can you you know you, you, you basically you're buying it once um, and so if you've already spent your money then when you go to the convention you're probably not going to have either as much to spend or or, in the case of someone like myself, where um, I don't have a huge number of new tricks coming out all the time, so therefore if people have already bought what they're interested in online when it first came out, then they've no reason to buy it again when if they see me at a convention. So um, I think the internet has got uh, a lot to answer for in that sense. I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing, but I think it means that as dealers we have to reflect um, more carefully on just whether it is worth our while to attend. And um, we've had an, a number of instances uh, in recent years as well where the amount of time allocated to the dealers is not particularly generous. Um, you've only got to have you know, a programme that's slightly too full with not enough reasonable gaps um, for the dealers to be kind of squeezed out. And, uh, and it's a lot of effort to go to conventions, a lot of expenses involved, and um, and I, for one, um, have found it increasingly um, non-productive and something that is really not worth my time doing. So we will see what the future of um, of magic being sold at conventions is. I suspect that the dealer halls are going to get smaller as the number of dealers who who go are going to is going to reduce. Uh, as dealers come to realise that actually they can make the same amount of money or indeed possibly even more by not attending events because all the Dems are online or on their websites already. So why would they need to attend when the people don't buy that much anyway and they can see it online? Probably one of the most uh, common questions that uh, young or new magicians tend to ask um, especially if they're just about to start getting involved with doing paid bookings, is uh, how much should I charge? And I was always always think that's a very difficult question to answer. It's hard enough knowing how much to charge for your own shows, never mind trying to give advice on what somebody else should charge. Because there are so many factors, aren't there, that need to come into it. What type of show is it? Who is it for, perhaps? Where is it? How much experience do you have? How keen are you? To have the show, um, because it's unless you actually publish your prices on a website or something, and I I would suspect that nobody does that, then it's really to a certain extent a little bit of negotiation is going to go on. I always think that it's a good idea to know in your own head a scale of charges that you feel happy with. You know, you sort of kind of generate, I think, after a while a sense of your own worth. What sort of fee am I happy to go out and perform for? And sometimes people sort out what that price is through pure mathematics. Okay, I need, if it, especially if they're going semi-pro and they want to earn a certain amount of money every year to supplement their normal income, then they will work out, well, I'm going to do, let's say, 30 shows in a year. So how much money do I need to earn from those? Okay, that means I need to charge this amount for each show by doing a bit of simple maths. But um, there are a lot of other factors too. And, and when somebody contacts you, you, I certainly will look at the booking. And although I have a scale of charges, it, it creates a starting point. I don't have absolute 100% fixed charges. Because there are occasions where, if, for instance, I have to travel a long distance to get to a booking, I need to charge a bit more. Not just for the travelling expenses, but for the fact that uh, I'm on the road for longer. I'm out for longer. There are other things that I can't be doing while I'm driving to and from the venue. But it's this this sense of what you are actually worth. What What is a, a fee that you think is commensurate with your experience, your ability? Um, you can get a sense of this, I suppose, by trying to find out what other magicians who you feel you're roughly the same as in terms of quality and experience, what are they charging? Maybe that'll give you a ballpark figure, but... I think, in a way, we're all very individual in the way that we perform. So I've always felt that uh, you you need to have a, a f- when you go out to do a show a figure in mind that you've charged. You think I'm very happy to be working for this amount of money, and not going out thinking, "Oh, I really under I really undersold this. I really I'm really not charging enough for this." It kind of sets up a feeling, an inner feeling of resentment almost that you didn't do it right. Whereas if you're going out thinking, "Yep, this is the right fee. I'm happy with this." Um, I think you, you have a much more uh, positive attitude to the booking generally. But trying to advise somebody else is very difficult in many ways as to what to charge, isn't it? How much experience do they have? What sort of, Have you ever seen them? If they ask you the question, have you actually ever seen them work for laypeople? Where are they in terms of their ability levels and in terms of how entertaining they are? How appropriate is their act for the audience they're hoping to go and entertain for? There are so many different things. But I certainly do think that, and and this is something that, uh, this is a discussion I have with my wife quite a lot. She always feels that when somebody uh, makes an inquiry, that you should try to get that that booking because almost, not irrespective, but within reason. In other words, adjust the fee to what you think the person can afford. And I disagree with that completely and utterly because I think um, you should have a sense of value. What is the minimum fee you're prepared to go out for? So how do you value your time and your skills and that that should be your starting point and you shouldn't just drop it just because someone says, oh, uh, can you can you do me a better rate or um, do, do, you, do you can you give me a discount on that just for no reason other than the person's trying to get you to do it for less money. Now, I know, you know, there are situations where you, you may be desperate for the income, in which case you may think, oh, no, something's better than nothing. But the trouble is, it's a thin end of the wedge. And um, once you start doing that, where's your lower limit? And if people get to know that that's what you'll do, oh yeah, just ring him up and just negotiate because he always drops down on price. It means that you're going to be working harder and harder for less and less money, which I, personally I don't think is a great way to go. So uh, trying to assess uh, where your your sense of show value is, I think is a really important thing. And the longer you've been doing it, the more you get to know what is about right. And of course, where you are geographically comes into it as well. The guys in in London and some of the other major conurbations can probably charge a higher rate than people out in the country or in low um, sort of income areas where people just simply don't have the money. And where you would work, you would probably never work if you charge, try to charge what the guys in London can charge. So many factors, so many things to think about. It's a bit of a mindful really, isn't it? Well, there you are then. I hope you enjoyed that rerun of um, some of the things I've talked about over the last 12 months or so. Um, all of the back issues of the podcast are available on my website. If you go to the podcast page, then you can select from any of the um, of the uh, previous editions and um, you can get the, the full versions, if you like, rather than these um, little snippets. Um, Next month uh, we'll be back to the the normal format of the, the um, of the podcast and uh, I may have one or two tales hopefully to tell from my um, lecture tour and convention trip which is coming up at the end of April and um, and which uh, I'm just about to set off on so I uh, look forward to uh, seeing you back here for another podcast uh, at the beginning of June.